Welcome to this week's episode of The Mixtape with Scott. I'm your host, Scott Cunningham, professor at Baylor in Waco, Texas. In case you were wondering, it is pronounced Waco, not Waco, but that has not stopped anybody uh, from saying Waco. So feel free to sort into either based on your preferences and if you're ever passing through town. This podcast is about the personal stories of living economists and occasionally dead ones when I can get ChatGPT to pretend to be one as I did the other day with an interview with the founder of economics, Adam Smith, played by ChatGPT4 on a romp through his classic book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And on that note, today I am introducing to you Avi Goldfarb, professor of marketing and a PhD economist by training at the University of Toronto. Avi has been at the forefront of artificial intelligence and what I would just probably call the economics of the internet for 20 years, dating back to his uh, graduation from uh, Northwestern University in the early 20th, 21st century. Uh, he, along with a select few other economists, too, were perfectly positioned to make strong contributions to our understanding of the economics of artificial intelligence. And given its popularity right now and its growing ubiquity, I thought it would be great to take a break from causal inference and Becker's students to the theme, two of the series that I keep refer we're, uh, getting into and sort of lean back into a series I haven't visited in a while, which is this economist in the tech industry. Uh, Avi, like I said, is not in the in industry. He's an economist in the marketing department at Toronto, but his career has studied uh, the internet, the economics of the internet, uh, particularly the industrial organization of the internet. And uh, he's a great person to interview. Plus, I'm interested in artificial intelligence. So that makes him even more interesting to me. Uh, and I think he's going to be interesting to you. Plus, he is also a PhD economist in a marketing department at Toronto, which I think probably at least some listeners uh, didn't know that marketing did hire PhD economists, but they do. Back to previous guest, uh, Chris Nosco, formerly at Uber, now a uh, fairly senior economist at uh, Amazon, began his career at Chicago's Booth School of Business in their marketing department. So I think it is probably, you know, something that the young listeners probably should just kind of uh, make a note of to learn more about opportunities, not just outside of academia, but even within academia, outside of economics, as they consider their own investments in human capital and ways that they might want to sort uh, into job markets after they graduate. So we talk about Avi's career from early on at Northwestern, like I said, as a grad student, and how he managed to grab hold of a key piece of data from a firm, uh, an internet firm, for lack of a better word, that went belly up during the dot-com era. But he left him with a big chunk of data that ended up sort of guiding him through a series of papers that ultimately helped him get tenure, which is kind of a key thing that sometimes you have to do. Uh, he We talk about how he... Um, sort of got a reputation also early on for uh, kind of bridging causal inference uh, with the economics of the internet. Uh, he gained a reputation specifically for the kind of taking these natural experiment methodologies uh, into that area. And I think it kind of helps show a little bit about how economics was exporting these ideas uh, into other fields as part of its larger you know, imperialism, for lack of a better word, of all lot of fields. So although some people hate that word not for 
pretty obvious reasons. So this is a fun interview for me. I hope it is for you. Don't forget to like, share, and enthusiastically promote this interview with at least 25 people that you meet in the next uh, 48 hours. Let's make that the goal. Just kidding. All right, y'all have a great day, and I'll see you. Uh, I'll, well, I'll see you in just a second. Okay, well, it is my pleasure to have with me uh, a guest that I've followed for uh, a while now, but hadn't had a chance to actually meet in person. Uh, guest, can you tell me your name, your job title, and who pays your paycheck? Uh, sure. I'm Avi Goldfarb. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, and I guess my title is the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare. Awesome. How long is it? How long have you had? How long has there been a chair that says AI on it? Uh, five or six years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. yeah. I guess, yeah, I'll save that for the end, but it seems like Toronto has had this connection with this AI for a little bit, right? Uh, yeah. We, a uh, bunch of the technologies were developed in our comp side department. And, uh, really? And so, yeah, deep learning came out of Toronto Computer Science, uh, Jeff no Hinton. Way. I didn't know that. So, um, huh. so that's that's really why you know good part of the reason why we ended up seeing AI early is we saw it out of our comp side oh. department. Here. Oh, oh, yeah. that now is okay. I should have saved that astonishment for okay. forty five minutes from now. Or foreshadowing. Right. We'll we'll, go, we'll right. return back to that. All right, cool. Yes. All right, so. Um, Obviously, it's nice to have you on the talks, the podcast. Well, so before we get started, can you sort of as an icebreaker, would you mind telling me a little bit, um, what was a vacation that you had as a kid that still to this day you think about from time to time? Um, that's funny. Okay. So, um, so I kids and, um, when I was entering second, no, entering third grade, my oldest sister was about to go into college. Mm. And my parents thought it would be the last time we all got to take a trip together. That turned out not to be true, but that was, that was what they thought. Yeah. And um, so they decided to do a big, long trip to Europe, where yeah. I, as a seven or eight-year-old, was way too young for. <laughs> but my older sisters in high school were, were age-appropriate. Yeah. And so we did a long trip the summer, summer of 1983 uh -huh. uh, to Europe, where we went to uh, Austria, to Switzerland, to France, uh, to Scandinavia and to England. And I remember the details of that trip, like almost day by day. Uh huh. And looking at my own, you know, third grade son right now, I can't believe that. <laughs> know how much of an impact made oh really both the uh, you know both the you know the classic tourism stuff that you'd imagine happens in europe but because uh me and, and my older brother were younger um than my sisters we did things like we went to the beach and we went to legoland uh -huh. and uh all these things that uh you know you don't usually associate with europe but, right. but somehow do Oh, that's cool. So you still think about it from time. Do you, you and your siblings still talk about it? Absolutely. Oh, that's Absolutely. cool. Have you ever tried to, that's probably too random to try to recreate, but I guess that, that has that kind of made you think about it when you go on vacations with your family? Um, absolutely. Just the idea that those vacations, you know, that vacation in particular are generally like real adventure vacations. Yeah. 
kinds of things that you remember for a long time. And so when oh, I take yeah. my, when my wife and I take our kids, uh, we think the same kind of thing, like right. we, we, real memories that will last a long time. Right. Right. You at least kind of know that's, that's like a, a, a thing that you could at least like, that's a, a kind of vacation that you could even possibly have. Uh, yeah. Is, is to, and it makes you probably want to do that kind of vacation with your family, just knowing it's possible for them to have it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. So where did you grow up? So I grew up here in Toronto. Oh, um, you did? Okay. Well, I'm in my hometown. I live like, you know, two miles from my parents. No um, way. A block from my sister, one of my sisters. Oh. Um, and so I'm one of the lucky people in our profession who actually got to live in, in their hometown and wants oh. to. Like, right, uh, right, right. And so, yeah, I grew up in Toronto, um, went away to grad school and came home. Oh, so you went, did you go to the University of Toronto as an undergrad? Uh, I went to Queen's University, which oh. is uh, in Kingston, Ontario, which is two and a half hours away. So. Oh, okay. Okay. What, what did your parents do for a living? Um, my researcher. Your so dad, did you said, research. say that again? Marketing research. What did so you think? My dad did marketing research. Oh, marketing research. Got it. Yeah. Like, you know, polling, focus groups, that kind yeah. of thing. Uh-huh. And my mom, uh, when I was actually largely, basically after that trip, started an interior design business. Oh. So before that she had five kids and that was, that was enough. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, when my oldest uh, sister went over off to university, she started to her own business. Oh, she started. So she, so she always had that, uh, kind of that, that natural kind of aesthetic sort of personality. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Just this kind of, so you probably grew up in just, is it true you probably grew up in just a beautiful home, kind of a beautiful aesthetic uh, kind of life? Yes. Yeah. Yes. They, she's, you know, she thought very carefully about what her rooms looked like and what the house looked like and all that. Absolutely. Totally. 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 Did you inherit any of that? Are you, are you sort of like that too? No. No? Not at all. <laughs> you know, I wish I, was, uh, I wish I had any of that. <laughs> none of it. Uh Okay, cool. So are, where are you in the birth order? You've got your the, Oh, you're the youngest. I'm oh. the youngest. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. Did anybody else become an academic? Um, so my sister got her PhD. One of my sisters got her PhD in political science, mm. um, but then ended up in industry. And my brother is, is a writer, but he teaches at Tisch at NYU. So. Oh, Oh, he's, he's, a, he's well, like he teaches creative writing or something in the English department, something yeah, like that. Um, uh, playwriting and screenwriting. Oh, I bet y'all have very interesting conversations about all this AI. I bet that Absolutely. can be, I bet there's yeah. lots of strong, strong, he was on strike. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, so, so what kind of games and things did you like doing as a little kid being the youngest in the family and all that stuff? Um, I'm already into that. I like Lego. Yeah. Uh, and uh and lots of make-believe games so oh, yeah um, that was more you know me and my brother he was look he ended up going into the theater right and and then right. uh you know the entertainment industry so we mm. we played a lot of make-believe games so even though you kind of weren't into interior design you were a creative um i was happy to follow my brother's creativity i think uh, it's the better way to think about it so y'all had a lot of creative games yeah. like a lot of like, like dungeons and, and dragons kind of stuff or something like that like play story games and stuff 
yeah, story games, a little Dungeons and Dragons, but more actually acting out either with with toys or ourselves while we were yeah. doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you have toys that you played with, like like Transformers and GI Joes and stuff? Uh, I had, yeah, I had Transformers. I had Smurfs. Smurfs. Had Lego. Those were yeah, my. Yeah. Oh, Legos. You said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, those were my main three. Well, so when you were little, like when you were 10, uh, and somebody had said, you know, Avi, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you, what do you remember thinking that you probably said or would have said? I think I would have said scientist. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. What I, kind of scientist? I don't think I had an idea that there were kinds of scientists. <laughs> yeah, uh, just, as soon as I asked that, that's exactly what I thought too. It's like it's uh, just it's just capital S. Yeah, I was going to be a scientist. I was going to wear a white you know lab coat and and do stuff with with glasses on. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> right. So you loved. Sorry, I interrupted you. So you would yeah. you would have uh, you would have said I wanted to be a scientist. I would have said I want to be a scientist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so go ahead. And then, and then I took high school sciences and realized I didn't want to be a scientist. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> once the science actually got real, um, I love math. Uh -huh. I loved history and political science and social sciences. Uh, but, but the hard sciences, um, I found, I don't know, I just found them kind of dull. Mm -hmm. I don't anymore now that I see my kids studying and I, you know, I somehow missed something in high school, but um but it was the math social science combination or math history combination that really excited me. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you were always good at math and but you had this broad interest in like the social the social parts of people, history um, and everything like that. Yeah. The the social parts of people, but in a in a broad scale, not a narrow scale. The you know sort of how, how do people make decisions? That was an idea that you know, that became of interest much much later. Yeah, it was more you know trying to understand the sweep of history and the differences between countries and how people live in different parts of the world. So you know history, geography, political science, that kind of thing. Was that in the family? We're we're because y'all go to Europe. So um, that trip, is that so kind of something in the family? That, um, yes, in the sense that my, my dad did marketing and uh, marketing is about understanding, you know, how people act and how the world works in some mm -hmm. sense, you know, trying to identify what people might want. Mm -hmm. And his, you know, he studied uh, anthropology uh, mm -hmm. way back in, you know, a long time ago. Um, and then my Three older sisters all ended up in, uh, you know, at least what they were studying was either psychology or sociology or um, uh, or political science. So yeah, there so wasn't there kind there of was a lot like, of science in the family. There yeah. was a lot of social science in the family. Like the y'all yeah. were. So do you remember conversations that would have? Now you look back and think we were kind of having uh, yeah. conversations about social science from the very beginning. Oh yeah, we were we were a very politically engaged family. So my dad, oh. um, my dad was a pollster. He, so Trudeau senior, not the current prime minister, but the the one from the seventies. Yeah. Uh, he was the pollster for the liberal party of Canada. Your dad was. Yeah. Oh, so we wow. About, we talked about politics a lot, it, but it would be like, you would talk about politics, but it would also be kind of connected to like the people kind of like what they're thinking or what they're, what their beliefs are yeah. not like not just like pure kind of philosophy but just no not not at all just oh. but we took particular issues that were happening in the country at a time because he was thinking about those political issues and trying to get a 
get the pulse of the of the country to to help the prime minister. So you're doing that in high school. You're having you're thinking about this stuff in high school, huh? Yeah, even earlier. Even earlier, huh? So did yeah. you? So so you're interested in math. You're good at math. You kind of have that. You have this creative side, and you're sort of interested broadly in like the social sciences for lack of a better word or however. And yeah. so do you notice now looking back in high school that you kind of start to drift sort of towards particular topics that now make sense when you look at your life? Uh, no, uh, not yeah. in high school anyway. Um, so like I started college as a history political science major mm. and I took economics because I thought it would be good for me. And I took math because I liked math. Um, but otherwise, I was history poli-sci. History poli-sci. And, um, and it was in my first year that I realized I really loved economics. Really? So that, uh, you know, the intro to econ course um, at Queen's University, uh, that was like, oh, this is this is how I think. This is exactly, you know, these are the things I find interesting. So I got super excited about that. Um, what was it? To the year. What are they doing uh, in that intro class? Do you remember what it was that kind of captivated you? Um, it was, you know, the, thinking about the world, I had no exposure to economics before that. So thinking about, you know, the simple concepts, supply and demand and the idea of equilibrium, how good intentions can go bad. Mm. Uh, and you know things like rent control that made a lot of sense to me once you uh, mapped it out and then sometimes how good intentions can be great when you try to deal with you know externalities and pollution mm -hmm. uh, and um and then just having that's the micro part and then for most of undergrad i was just more excited about the macro part which yeah. is these big social problems of recessions and unemployment and inflation um it seemed like it was a toolkit to to think about them and try to try to understand them. And that yeah. I found very exciting. Yeah. Do, do you think <clears throat> I'm just now kind of speculating, but do you think like, because you had that interest in math, you, do you wonder if maybe the, the graphs captivated you even Tom too? hundred percent. I, yes. Um, I found the graphs very intuitive, mm -hmm. easy to understand. And frankly, I still do. So yeah. Lots of economists, when you get to a certain point, still you know start to think in algebra, yeah, uh, calculus. I still think in you know graphs going one way or another. It really um, seems like that you know was a real breakthrough when you think about the history of the science. Just like these these little bitty things where we can put them into pictures, the models into pictures. It seems like it really, really was a powerful thing because I I just have had. I mean, it's not all, a lot of my intellectual experiences haven't always been in graphs, but w when they are in a graph, it's really deep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, you, so you take that class. Was that just like a standard econ intro class or was this like famous professor or something like that? No, it was a standard intro class. I actually wish I, my, I think my name, uh, we called him, was a grad, my professor was a grad student, I'm pretty sure. Oh. Um, and I don't know what happened to him. I think his name was Professor Biswal, but I don't, I don't even know his first name. And Biswal's common enough that I, I tried to find, figure out who he was and I can't find him. Oh, um, and then, um, and then in the later years, you know, second, third and fourth year, I started to have 
uh, inspiring researchers as professors really? who be actually in particular into macro and economic history, oh. which isn't really where I landed, but we'll, we'll get to there. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so you're, 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 uh, you switch out of history, political science, or do you just kind of end up doing like a big bunch of majors type thing? No, I, I switch out of history and political science to econ. I take, I think I ended up with enough history courses that I it could have been called a minor. Yeah. But, but I never, you know, formally did that, but it's, you know, I did a couple of history courses in the history department and then lots of economic history. Yeah. Did you know that you were going to need to continue take math or is it just that like math had a lot of consumption value? So you were taking these classes. Um, after, after first year, I just took the math that was required for econ. I see. So in first year, I didn't even take the econ math. I took the sciences math because I didn't know I was going to be an econ. Right. And then after that, I took the math required for econ, but it means at that time it was pretty intense. Um, this is like the mid nineties. This was mid nineties. Okay. So the math requirements, um, oh, Queen as a school had very strong Queen math requirements. Yeah. For, for an econ major for relative econ. to, um, so like a lot of my peers in grad school were math econ double majors or something like that or, mm -hmm. or math minor. I didn't have that, but I had almost enough math. The math guy still needed math camp and I did some catch, but not, um, not as much as someone who was an econ major at a U.S. school. So it's not like the carrot. So of the carrot and the stick for taking all the math, it was more of like the stick. You had like the requirements. Yeah. But then, did was there a point where you're thinking I gotta now my my the vision of my future is becoming a little bit clearer, and I need to take more math, or or was it not like that? So I had no idea in undergrad. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> I just did whatever the school said I had to do and yeah. chose courses that were interesting and had no thoughts about mapping out that as a future. Because so I just didn't know, first of all, I didn't, I didn't really even know what an econ PhD meant. Right. Uh, and um, yeah, and the, the advice I got was sort of, you know, uh, do what you find interesting. And so that's what I, I spent time doing. I took some maths. And I look, I liked math and I was good at math, but relative to my peer great math class, I've never been at the top mm -hmm. on the math, so, on the math side. So I, I've, I've liked it. I've been, um, I've seen it as, as interesting and necessary, but I'm not people are in econ because they loved math and then wanted to figure out something to do with it. Right. Um, uh, that's, that's not so much the angle I've come from. Math for you, me is very cool. How would you describe your angle then? Yeah. Um, I, I get excited by what's going on out in the world and trying to think through the tools for under, but it goes both, it goes back and forth. So sometimes, you know, we've had advances at, you know, more in my research career, we've had advances in tools and then I, Hey, that's a really interesting tool. We can now, you know, you know, this, we can now think about how to study this old problem that we might not have been able to before. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of back and forth, um, but generally it's, uh, you know, the stuff in the world that I find interesting is the starting point mm -hmm. and which almost always, at least since, you know, for the last 20 years comes from a conversation with a colleague. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's interesting. We have lunch together and I'm like, Oh, 
wonder if wonder what that looks like and then that spins out into a paper right 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 so so yeah yeah you're you're that even kind of makes me think of what you said about you and your dad uh him coming to you about what's going him y'all's conversations were about what was going on in the world not yes. some kind of pure theory it was just more no. like this is this is what's happening in the world and then you would talk from there yeah we'd talk about the political issues or something we would we wouldn't have any it wouldn't be rooted at all and is this you know which kind of philosophy are you thinking about that just right. wasn't i was a kid too but that just wasn't the conversation that wasn't the conversation yeah. I, okay so then so you, you're there's nothing in that college experience that's like uh, I'm going to be interested in like questions like IO or, uh, or industrial organization, or there is yeah. no internet, there's no internet uh, content, well, I well, guess, well, that no, would have captivated you back yeah. then, right? What had there been? No, there wasn't even really an internet. Um, yeah, right. I started in 97. So I guess the hype was starting. But in my last year, I took an economic history course with Marvin McGinnis, who is an historian, economic historian. Yeah. And he taught us joe mulcair's lever of riches as the core textbook uh-huh and then a bunch of other economic you know history of technology right uh, oh ideas and i loved that course that was maybe the course that i found most exciting in all of undergrad like marvin he really inspired me ah. and, um then when i was applying to grad schools and choosing grad schools um i applied to northwestern largely because mulcair was there oh and then i got in um and selected it for a handful of reasons. Uh, but among them that, you know, this person who wrote the book that inspired me so much on the history of technology was there already. And yeah. I thought, well, you know, I really love history. Maybe that's, maybe that's a path to uh -huh. be an economic historian. Um, so you originally so, were hoping to be an economic historian. Well, you can, I hadn't quite decided. So economic historian or macro. Or um, macro. Yeah, I ended yeah. up as far as possible for macro, I think, in many ways. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but early on, I was kind of doing economic history in the 90s. Um, uh -huh. So oh, you were in the that's what well, in the 90s you were no, no, doing that initially. Sorry, just to be uh, no, I wasn't clear. Um, my some of my early papers, my approach to understanding the internet, uh -huh. were. Uh, had a lot in common with the way the economic history of technology folks yeah. thought the previous days. So it was, you know, it was, it was not history because it was so recent, but it mm -hmm. had a very similar lens. Mm. So you go to Northwestern, it's like econ history macro, but you're also maybe the, the technology part. Is kind yeah. of you're kind of interested in. You noticed that you were thinking, I want to I, do econ history of technology. Kind of, you were already um, thinking that way. I was not like I'd love to say there was some grand plan or anything like. Uh huh. Realistically, I got in, I went to Northwestern because it was the best school I got into. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> it wasn't sure. any much deeper than that. Um, I had no idea, honestly, what industrial organization was. I hadn't taken any IO. It wasn't uh much of a focus of what i'd done at at northwestern my favorite two classes were macro search class with shu yang shi and this um economic you know history technology class i arrived at northwestern realized at least in northwestern that macro wasn't what i thought it was mm. um, and 
that I really loved micro. And in particular, Mike Winston um, was, you know, taught us the last sequence of micro and he was teaching Mascala, Winston and Green and it was pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, and in the next year I decided, well, you know, we seem to be really good at IO here. Let's do some IO. Let's do some oh. industrial organization. So it was, you, it was you funny. get through your first, first year and yeah. he had taught Winston's teaching your part of your micro sequence. You do well in it. Is that the thing? You actually kind of do do well I enough in it, it. But I loved it. You loved it. It was more that I loved it than I did well. I did fine, but I wasn't. It wasn't like I was top of the class. What was Dr. Winston's main specialization? I interviewed Maskell this week, and I know about generally yeah. from his part. But what was his main area? Or is I-O. it was it was I O. It was I O. Oh, yeah. okay. So you're getting like you're getting yeah. I O from the source. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the next year I took the IO sequence. I took some history um, and then some theory and econometrics because I thought it was good for me. Right. Right. Um, and which which was correct. It was good yeah. for me. <laughs> uh, and realized that I, I found IO fascinating. And so I decided to be decided to go into IO. So that happened. So 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 what do you end up doing your dissertation on? And and who's your chair? Okay, so my chair is Rob Porter. Yeah. Um, so I O. Um, and my dissertations, uh, I ended up doing my dissertation on search engine competition. Oh. Way back when there was actually competition between search engines. So I got data from a, um, essentially from a handful of ISPs from a company that was collecting you know, user level data from ISPs. Huh. And I had visited a, a few thousand people over three months. So you and back got in that data. Okay. I, that's so yeah. funny that you say this because this is literally part of the questions I was going to ask you was how are you getting data uh, for this research agenda? So early in the, 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 the history, because so, it's just so hard to, you have to have these yeah. access, these firms to do this and you've managed to do it. So that was, um, so I started working with Rob um somewhere toward the end of my second year maybe early in my third year i got excited about um you know io generally originally actually my first two io papers the first one was on on the beer industry about the the decline of schlitz beer oh. and the second one i was leaning to was on advertising in the cigarette industry and then i had this thing in the back of my head is i don't want to be the beer and cigarettes guy yeah and so i decided i didn't want to be the beer and cigarettes guy and was looking around for an industry and it was 2000 or 1999, 2000. And there was this, you know, the internet scene and no. So I figured. Oh. Was this after Microsoft ends up with that uh, antitrust thing where there was the, the, the browser? What was that? It was in the middle Explore. of it. It was around the yeah. same time? It was, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Competition between browsers. Who are the comp? Who's the competition then? It's Explorer. So Netscape. the browsers was Explorer, Netscape. Really, those were the main two back then. What all was uh, it? Was there something called Opera? Something with an M? Yeah. Mozilla? Uh, Mozilla, I think, was later. That's later? Okay, uh, yeah. yeah. I can barely I don't, Ask um, Jeeves. So, we'll see if yeah. Ask Jeeves is still well, so, up Okay, there. so those were search engines, right? So there was the browsers, and actually that's what the, the case was about the browsers. Um my data was about what websites people were visiting. Oh. So I was trying to understand uh, your choice of search engine. Okay. Um, so yeah, describe and, that data. I don't know what the data is. So, so this is okay, like. So that, 
That was interested in the internet. Rob sent me to Shane Greenstein. So Shane uh, at the time was in Kellogg in the strategy department. And um, Shane, Shane was doing the economics of the internet already. Oh, he said, you know, I get, keep getting these inbound requests from companies to see if I'm interested in their data. Here's a whole bunch of them. And he gave me, I guess at that time, lots of one of the lead scholars on it. And so if you were an internet company trying to get a professor to uh, look at your data, you asked Shane. Oh, okay. So Shane sent me this list of 10 or so companies and I found another 20 to 30 that might work. And I just emailed them. Sometimes with this Shane's contact and some without and say, Hey, you know, I'm a graduate student. I'm working with Shane Greenstein. Um, and I'm interested in understanding the economics of the internet. Yes. And, uh, one got back to me within 15, none of the others responded at all. One got back to you within 15 minutes. Yeah. So I sent an email. He, the guy came back to me, said, um, yes, uh, we have data and we want you to help. Okay. Oh. So it was this company in uh, Cary, North Carolina, they were called Fovion, and they collected, they put a, um, you know, um, uh, they collected data from ISPs. So they made partnerships with ISPs to collect data on what users were doing. Okay. And so um, they had data on millions of users mm. for every single website they went to. They uh, they had no idea what to do with it. This was during the peak of the dot-com boom, the uh, first few months of the year 2000. And um, they were looking for people to help them. They, were, they, they raised something like tens of millions in funding. And so I went to Cary, North Carolina for uh -huh. six weeks uh -huh. to work in their office and try to leave with the CD-ROM of data. That, that was my goal. That was your um, goal. That was my goal. And um, so um, so I was there. I was there for six weeks. Um, what were they getting out of the deal? They were trying to, they were getting use cases, essentially. So they, they had data. They didn't know who would use it and for what. Mm. Uh, they were also getting a, how the structured. Uh, once I arrived there, I realized they had a couple other economists they were working with. Uh, most notably, Greg Crawford was at Duke at the time. Uh, he was an assistant professor, and he was also working with their data. Mm. They're just trying to figure out what their data was for. They had data. They didn't know what it was for. In fact, as a commercial business, they never figured out what it was for, and the, they went under uh, with, in the dot-com bust. So all uh, that remains, maybe not quite all that remains of the company, but a good chunk of what remains of that company is my dissertation. Yeah, that's uh, CD-ROM. very expensive dissertation. <laughs> all um, right. right. Okay. <laughs> So what's so, the unit of observation yeah. in this data set? The unit of observation is a website visit. Website. So, oh. So over the course of three months, you might visit something, or this was in dial-up days. So you might have visited something like a thousand websites. And for each person, I had a thousand website visits. Those thousand, something like 200 to 250 would have been to search engines. Mm. You know, Yahoo, Microsoft, uh, Network, Ask Jeeves, Lycos, Google was there, but they weren't very popular. So back then, were people using multiple browsers per person? Yeah, they're using multiple search engines. Absolutely. Oh wow, huh? Man, well, yeah, I keep saying browser. Yeah, search, they're not the same thing. They're not the, the, the browser is the is the um the interface the software 
computer that allows you to um, yeah. go different places on the internet that interprets HTML. The search engine is Google, right? Is, yeah. Right now, I think I used to know all this and now all of a sudden it just blacked yeah. out. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so what is your dissertation about? So the dissertation was about competition between search engines. So in particular, how uh, the core question was, uh, was there a causal impact of visiting a search engine today on the search engine you visited next time? So do we see state dependence in, in, in search engine choice mm. uh, over and above consumer preference, like the, the underlying consumer preferences? This is, turns out to have been an old question or a very focal question at the time in the marketing literature. So a lot of the literature I cited was out of marketing science, general marketing research on these uh, you know, models of how people buy in grocery stores. Do they buy, you know, uh, depending on the brand of yogurt you bought last time, do you buy the same brand of yogurt again? Um, and I took those models and applied them to online behavior. Mm. And I found, you know, broadly, there was some state dependence, but if you compare the number to what it would have been in like breakfast cereals or something like that. It was what match. It was, it was lower. It was lower. It was lower. It was, huh. it was less state dependence. Um, huh. So, and I, I started with those kinds of tools. And then as part of the job market tour, someone commented, actually it was Mike Winston in my sort of practice talk. He said, you know, it'd be great. It'd be great if there was a situation where people couldn't visit a website. And so you had a quasi experiment and that, was one of my first exposures to the real idea of thinking about quasi experiments. It was, it was quite late because uh, I was more doing structural demand estimation as we did it in, you know, 2000, 2001. Mm. Um, I realized that there was a denial of service attack uh, on Yahoo in the middle of my data set. Really? So Yahoo was shut down for three months, for three hours. And huh. Yahoo was the number one search engine, uh, number one or two, depending on how you count. And so we now had thousands of people who probably would have wanted to go to Yahoo and didn't or, and went somewhere else. Uh -huh. And then I could observe if having gone to place one uh, meant that you ended up sticking at that place or if you just went back to your favorite search engine. So I now that was my mm -hmm. first paper with a quasi experiment. And actually, in many ways, more importantly than the dissertation itself, because that wasn't part of my dissertation that I wrote after graduation, that ended up being, you know, a core part of my research identity um, in the economics of the internet space, which is, you know, looking for these, uh, you know, quasi experimental events yeah. that affected some internet others and assess how it impacted outcomes. You started looking, that got in your head and you were looking yeah. for more and more of that. Exactly. Think, so, so was that because you just were kind of fascinated by the quasi experiment or was it that, or, and, or, or neither that it really was becoming a very productive way of doing your research? Um, I think more the latter in the sense that I was, um, you know, at least in the economics of innovation community, uh, that was the way the field was going. Mm. And so at graduation, I, I wore these two different hats, which is I landed in a marketing department in Toronto. Mm. And so marketing at the time, quantitative marketing was very structural. Yeah. Okay. But the internet work I was doing and sort of it was part of the economics of innovation community that Shane Greenstein was a part of and some others. And that was increasingly becoming quasi-experimental. Oh. So my pre-tenure of my work had these two hats. I had structural marketing work, 
Yeah. Quasi experimental economics of innovation and the internet work. That's a great, um, that's the great dual uh, and, set of skills. And, uh, and honestly, the rewards, so the, the immediate rewards seem to be stronger on the structural side and that I was in public and they didn't seem to have any interest in quasi experiments. Yeah. But the external, the broader awards, like the research community and the people who are willing to talk to me because my research was interesting, mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I went to a conference or things like that, it was clear that the quasi-experimental work was what people were excited about. Wow. Broader community was excited about. That's very, uh, so, so how are you doing both? So, so walk me through some of these early kind of uh, exciting projects that were both managing yeah. to get data because that's actually part of it too is i mean even today it's hard to get data and yeah. back then i'm just curious how were you going about finding data and finding quasi experiments in a way that's like pushing your career forward um so that initial so there's the data sets um so that initial dissertation data led to a handful of papers. Mm -hmm. uh, first paper that uh, really anybody noticed, which is a paper that came out in the Journal of International Economics called, uh, what was it called? Does the internet defy the law of gravity? Yeah, I saw so that one, yeah. Trade paper, yeah, so. It was a trade paper, it was like a, uh, was a trade gravity paper. model? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in my last term at Northwestern, I started working with Shane Greenstein and a guy named Chris Foreman, um, who's now at Cornell, on a data set that was a comprehensive data set of 30% of all large US establishments, a survey of their internet use. Mm -hmm. So it was mostly used for, for you know, selling hardware and software into companies, but it was at the time, an incredibly comprehensive of internet use by businesses as of the year 2000. Mm. And uh, Shane, Chris, and I wrote probably close to a dozen papers using that data set. So, you know, so one version of it is, how did you get so many data sets? The, the honest answer is, I didn't get so many data sets. I got a couple of really, really good ones. I see. Um, that proved useful. And um, was that luck or was it something endogenous on your part that kind of made that happen? Um, it was luck. You know, I heard your, your interview with Steve Tadellis saying good decisions are a combination. You know, luck yeah. is a com success is a combination of luck and good decision-making. And yeah, uh, you know, the, it was luck that the, the data sets came my way uh -huh. uh, where it was some good decision-making is when I got a good data set, Mm -hmm. uh, my co-authors and I figured out there was a lot in there and not just one paper. Yeah. It also and, seems like you had a good crew. It seems like, oh, yeah. it seems like you stuck, like you stick with Shane. I noticed you write a lot of papers with him early on. It looks like you, yeah. you're, you were, I, I did see at least some solo stuff, but it looked like you, you kind of are in a, in, in a good collaborative group from a very beginning. Is that right? That's that absolutely. The, I realized very early on that I did not like writing papers by myself. Yeah. The last, the last research paper um, that I wrote by myself, I think was published in 2006. It's, mm -hmm. um, I much prefer working with people. I've worked with Shane and Chris many, many times. I've worked with Jay Agarwal lots now with Joshua Gans too. Mm -hmm. And then Catherine Tucker and I started working together 
um, a few years later, and Catherine and I are still writing together. And there's uh-huh. there's a handful of us too. So, well, so um, in that early group with Shane and stuff, when you're fresh out of grad school, what what's kind of your comparative advantage in that group? I know it differs differs yeah. group to group, but it what was it back it then? Differs group to group for sure. But um, with especially early on with Shane and Chris, I was the econometrician. Oh, so, you're the quasi experimental uh, guy. I was the quasi experimental guy. Um, I so was you're investing up- in a lot of like instrumental variables, methodologies, and stuff like that. You're staying up to speed on all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, and it was um, it was a good time to be an applied econometrician and quasi experiments because it yeah. was. It was getting easier. Mm-hmm. The the toolkit in the 1990s, in some sense, there were all these different choices. And then Angrist and others came along and said, no, actually, there's best practices. Mm-hmm. And um, for a short time, there was consensus on what those best practices were. And so as long as you could you know, understand the reason for the consensus, um, it was um, for someone who... Um, was not an econometric theorist. Like I wasn't going to be inventing methods. I was able to figure out what the right things to do were in a particular situation. So with Shane and Chris, that was clearly my... Can you give me an example? I'm just curious. What's an example of like, there was a diversity of opinion and Angerson and Edmonds kind of clarify it. Like for you in your, like as you bring it to the team, what was it? What would be an example? If you have, and some of them are, um, if you have a discrete dependent variable... Uh-huh. Um, do you do logit? Do you do probit? Uh, do you do linear probability? Do you figure out something else to do? And Angus and others said, you know, but, but if you have a million observations, which I did, you know, which we did, or hundreds of thousands, the linear probability model is going to do what you need it to do. Mm. And that, uh, that, that consensus didn't last forever, maybe, but, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but at the time, there were some checks that you had to do to make sure that when you predicted out a sample or uh, you know, the prediction values were between zero and one and a handful of them. And, um, and if then a billion ago. Yeah. Um, and um, other ones on uh, how do you deal with standard errors and difference and difference. Ah, you know, that's, after the uh, after the 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 Bertrand Millington paper, yeah, do for exactly him. right, yeah. Right. Uh, so a lot of a lot of things just kind of clear up, and now you can focus on your strengths as like a quasi. So what are some quasi experimental, some more quasi experimental stuff that you sort of you know were able to take advantage of in that early in that early wave of your work? Yeah. So, um, Catherine Tucker and I. I had a series of papers on online advertising um, and uh, a couple of them were, they were all related to restrictions on advertising that occurred in some places and not others. Oh. So the first one we looked at uh, the price of advertising in search engines and Google in particular. And um, it turned out some States have these ambulance chaser laws where personal injury lawyers aren't allowed to solicit business directly. Right. And other states don't have those laws. And so uh, what, what we realized is if you look at law-related keywords, there's some that are impacted by this direct, the ambulance chaser laws and some that aren't. Like personal injury lawyer is impacted, family lawyer is not. Mm. Um, and the states with those rules were 
oh, a relatively simple diff and diff, not a one, but a, a simple diff and diff between the personal injury versus family lawyer states with the rural states without gave you an impact of those laws on search on ad prices. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. And so that was, that was the first one that Catherine and I worked on together. Uh, that started, I don't know, mid 2000s sometime. Is it and a then, large community of economists that are consuming this research at this time? Or are you sort of in a broad interdisciplinary area where you would present that kind of research to marketing or, or what? Um, there was, it was not mainstream economics. Um, yeah. I argue it might not be. Um, is, so my, look, no one knew who I was. My audience is whoever would listen to me. Yeah. Um, so I applied to, um, you know, so many different conferences and different disciplines. I spent a lot of time in information systems conferences. Um, I spent some time at marketing conferences, quantitative marketing conferences, and in econ, typically economics of innovation. So IO wasn't interested in this yet, mm. um, but there was an economics of innovation crowd that was. Where are they at at this time? Who are these they people? Were, so NBER had an innovation group. Wow. That is now huge, but back then it was, you know, a one day, uh, you know, one day of the summer Institute. Right. Um, a small group we fit in, you know, uh, like, a, almost a classroom size room. Um, and then there was also at NBR for some of the internet work, there was, uh, the interest in measurement. So the CRIW folks who were, Half of them were working for the government, the PLS, or the census, mm -hmm. trying to get their head around how do we measure this new technology. Yeah. Um, that was, you know, that was also a crew that was interested. Mm -hmm. And so there was... Um, it just came naturally to you, though, is what I'm guessing. It came naturally to you to just be like, I'll just go wherever. I'll go talk to whoever. And it just send oh. it out, see where it goes. And you're, you just had a sense of like, I'm... This is uh, all on my back to make it work. Uh, yes. I wouldn't say I had a sense. Uh, it's almost more that I was naive uh -huh. and um, didn't have much of a strategy, except for that I found this stuff interesting. Right. And uh, so I just hoped other people did, and I didn't know who might. Mm -hmm. And so I applied widely. And early on, that strategy was great because mm -hmm. most people said no. And then there was this one year uh, where I realized I had to be more selective because something, you know, people started to get interested in, you know, a wide set of people started to get interested in the topic. And I went from, you know, for every 10 conferences or things I applied to, maybe getting into one to getting into all 10 you know, of, them. of them. And then, <laughs> yeah, right. And I had to figure out what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. So you're at Toronto. Your whole career has been at Toronto. My whole career. I've had sabbaticals at Columbia and BU and Stanford, but the career has been in Toronto. And it's always been in the marketing department? Yeah. You're not joint in the econ department or something like that? I have a cross-appointment to econ so I can supervise PhD students. I see. Um, but, but Are I you the only economist in the marketing department? Uh, no. Our, our department's pretty filled with economists. Oh, is that uh, right? Yeah. So Is that normal? Is that, is that a marketing phenomenon? That, uh, yes. So I heard about marketing, like JP Dubay was a couple of years ahead of me. Um, mm -hmm. he at Northwestern also Rob Porter student ended up in marketing at Chicago. 
Um, and that was the first time I even heard about quantitative marketing or marketing as an academic career. Even though I grew up in marketing, right. I knew nothing about it, right? Yeah. Um, and um, he, there was a trickle of economists into marketing before him, but starting with him, that was the year 2000, mm-hmm. uh, there was a wave of economists hired into marketing departments on the quant mm-hmm. side. Um, and is that so, coming from this like discrete choice modeling demand yeah. and that kind of stuff? So it's yeah. coming from that. Yeah. Or it wasn't the time for sure. The, and that's what you could do. You came out of Northwestern with like, that's, that's in my toolkit. Yeah. And yeah. I was going to do that anyway. And what it, so has marketing as a field been like kind of intrigued by this uh, quasi experimental causal inference? Have you watched that at all? It, uh, yes. There's been a huge, you know, early on when I started the journals and the marketing folks had no interest and yeah. all of my quasi experimental stuff ended up. Yeah. And somewhere around 2010, things changed. Huh. Um, and there was a interest and an acceptance of quasi-experimental work. Wow. So, um, what's your big theory about what's going on? What's the, what's the sociology of all that? Uh, maybe there was enough, uh, people that no retired, but so some version of it is the economists trained in events who went into marketing. Yeah. They were trained after something like 1998. They understood the value of quasi-experiments. Got it. Okay. Okay. So, so the the um, I was looking at your uh, I was looking at the I, I you have two books and I have both of them, but they were they're supposed to be upstairs and I only found one upstairs. But I was looking at prediction machines. Is that the first one or is that the second one? That one. That's the what? That's the first one. That's the first one. How'd that book come about? That's with Agarwal and and Josh Gans. What's the origin of that book? So, um, okay, so we're going to go back a long ways. So, Ajay and I were co-authors. We wrote a paper published in 2008. Actually, it was the paper that got both of us tenure. Uh, And um, Y'all were colleagues both in the marketing department? Uh, he's in strategy. Oh, he's in strategy. Oh, so Toronto must yeah. just have this kind of big, big, elaborate business school. Yeah. And there's the economists. We all sort of talk to each other. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Um, and uh, Jay started this program for science-based startups called the Creative Destruction Lab. Yeah. Uh, and in cohort lab back in 2012, there was this company out of our comp sci department, out of Hinton's lab. Uh, doing artificial intelligence. It was run by a PhD student out of his lab. Really? And that was our first exposure to the idea of commercial potential for AI. When is this? This is 08? Uh, 2012. 2012. There's a computer science student in the computer science department, or he's in... He's in comp sci department. He's in comp sci. Go ahead. And he's starting a company to to use artificial intelligence for discovering new drugs. So essentially AI to predict which molecules bind with which proteins. But back then that, you know, in 2012, that was totally new. Mm. Uh, the idea of artificial intelligence for any commercial application. Was that, and what then, would that have been if you didn't call it artificial intelligence? Would you have just it said machine learning. it was machine learning? Okay. Yeah, it was computational stats. Got so it. Got it. Is, you know, the, the innovation out of our comp sci department was the, the core one was deep learning. Nets. And neural uh, nets. Deep, deep so, learning uh, and neural nets comes out of this guy's lab? 
Yeah. This guy, what's this person's name? Jeff Hinton. Huh. Is he still there? Yeah, he's still there. But the people he worked with, you know, Jan LeCun and, and others are no longer there. And look, any innovation obviously happens with multiple people, but he's yeah. thought of as the as the founder of, of deep learning and neurons. Okay. And so um, you guys were in you were like hanging out with him too? Not at all. Oh, we just okay. this one company coming out of his out of 25 in our cohort. Got it. But it was, it was a really interesting company. Huh. Then the next year, uh, we had a couple more. And in the 2015, we had so many applications to our lab that were doing AI that we doubled the size of the lab and had 25 AI based. Okay. Creative Destruction Lab 2014. All of a sudden, yeah. sees a surge in in demand to come there to be in the lab. Surge yeah. of what? Students, PhD students. So people with AI companies. People with AI so, companies coming out so, of the Creative Destruction Lab. So they were AI companies coming out of either our comp sci department in Toronto or to some extent a nearby university called Waterloo. Uh -huh. uh, but they were, you know, our program was for science-based startups, and suddenly uh, we had many AI-based, science-based startups applying to be in the lab. And we decided to have a whole stream dedicated to AI. Oh. And then, then Ajay and I went on sabbatical. We went to Stanford. Together. And together. Um, because and this is a partnership that is turning out to be really valuable for both of you. Yes. Y'all are both good friends and get along real and well. We're good friends and our, our kids are friends and our wives are friends. And, you know, over oh, the years we've been family friends. Okay. Oh, that's a dream. It's been fantastic. And then we went to went to Stanford uh, and intrigued by this idea of AI. And like, let's let's try to, you know, we, we focused on the internet. Let's start writing about artificial intelligence. What we saw in the lab, we seem to have this front row seat before anybody else saw it. Let's, let's think about what the consequences are. And we struggled to identify a research question or a framing. And then I had, I went for a, a walk with Tim Bresnahan, who's a professor at Stanford in the econ department. And, um, and Tim, Tim was my advisor's advisor, or Tim was Shane's advisor. So he sort of like, you know, he felt some, uh, connection to me anyway. And he reminded me of some of his early work on, on computing and said, well, computers, it feels like computers do all sorts of things, but actually they just do arithmetic and they make arithmetic cheap enough that we find new applications for arithmetic because oh. demand curves slope downward. Yeah. And um, after that talk, Ajay and I went for, she went for a run and we started chatting about it and we realized, well, maybe we can frame this current excitement about artificial intelligence technology. So based on some work by Sendel Melanathan and Jan Spice and others, like this, you know, think about prediction policy problems and understanding that this is not causal inference. Sorry, Scott, but it was prediction <laughs> technology. Yeah, right. Um, is, is a really useful way to think about machine learning. Uh -huh. And so... We we got all excited and we're like, well, it hasn't diffused yet, so there's nothing empirical here. Let's go talk to Joshua. He's a theorist. Okay, what year are we? What year are we right now? Twenty seventeen. Fall twenty fifteen. Twenty fifteen. Got it. Okay, keep yeah. going. So let's go talk to Joshua. He's a theorist, and he can tell us what the research paper is. Well, if we understand AI is a drop in the cost of prediction. Is this the first time Josh is kind of stepping his foot into the creative destruction lab? No, so Joshua has been part of the creative destruction lab from the beginning, but these. He's been part, you know, the the focus on let's do some research on AI, 
I think Joshua and Jay had had some conversations independently. This is um, the first one though. But this is the first one where we're like, okay, let's hear, we have an idea. We need somebody who understands theory and we're going to try to unpack it. And then Joshua goes to us. So you want to write a theory paper that says demand curve slope downward. Like, well, <laughs> I could do that yeah. right now. <laughs> He's like, well, I don't think anyone's going to paper that's downward. Like, fair. Uh, <laughs> so we wrote, we wrote it as a blog post. Oh, and so we wrote it up as a blog post for HBR oh. saying we should think about AI as prediction. And the thing that gets more valuable is a complement to prediction, which we called human judgment. Okay. Oh. Um, that blog post. That's the skill. That's the skill bias technological kind of yeah, skill bias technology is the, is judgment. Is judgment. What's judgment? Judgment is, so formally judgment are the payoffs at the end of the decision tree. Informally you can, is the payoffs. Yeah. Not the skill. Not the skill. So but judgment is your ability to know what the payoffs are. Oh. Right. So it's a decision. Oh. It's decision theoretic. So we, we took sort of a decision theoretic framing and said, well, there's uncertainty. Uh -huh. A prediction machine helps you resolve the uncertainty, but you actually still don't know what, to, you know what the payoffs are. Yeah. And oh, so interesting. Is that original with you thinking of it that, that way? Thinking of uh, judgment yes. as being able to apprehend the end of the tree? Yes. And to maybe that, that, even see over counterfactual kind of counterfactuals like off equilibrium stuff. Um, is it the same as just like uh, being able to calculate the solution to the game? It's not the same thing. Um, no, it's not necessarily about calculating the solution so much as identifying the payoffs. Uh, oh, you just so, even know when think the about it right now we're in a single agent model, not in a game. You can think about it in games, but games gets harder. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now your prediction tools won't work as well. Uh-huh. Right. Um, and so... So, um, okay, I'm following. So the value of AI is... How did you... Sit, now, going back to how you framed it, the value of AI is the bundling of the technology with, with judgment? That's not exactly right. How did you yeah, say it? No, so AI is prediction technology. Yes. So it makes it easier to know the state of the world or uh -huh. to get an estimate of the state of the world. Judgment is given the state of the world and your decision, what are the payoffs? Uh-huh. Okay. So um, judgment is knowing the reward uh, to an action in a particular environment. Okay. Um, right. And Can you give me um, an example? Give me an example of what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So uh you, know, you might have a rain uh, forecast, weather forecast that says 40% chance of rain. Right. Okay. Okay. With a 40% chance of rain, some people will carry an umbrella and some people won't. Yep. Okay. The prediction's the same. Yes. The judgment is how much do you hate carrying an umbrella and how much you hate getting wet. Okay. 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 And so the the insight for some of the practical use of, of AI is in order to understand um, what decision to make the machine can tell you the state of the world mm -hmm. but it can't tell you what to do got it that got requires it. a human either in the loop after the prediction comes out yeah or to pre-specify what to do uh, in a given situation oh yeah right 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 so the ai is the the ai is basically a more accurate description of the state of the world yeah but it is not the the judgment part but, yeah, when, it but yeah. when it is 
when it binds with, but it complements judgment. Yes, exactly. Judgment becomes more valuable. Got it. Uh, because you know, it raises the marginal product of judgment. Exactly. Oh, oh. So, like, now give me like a real world example of like a business. Okay. Um, so, you might human HR managers deciding uh, who to hire and who to fire. Okay. Yeah. And then you say, well, I want to use AI for this. Okay. Um, well, what does that mean? You're going to have to have some prediction about what a good employee is. Mm -hmm. So that definition of a good employee and the benefit of hiring somebody good versus, um, not hiring somebody who's mediocre. Yeah. Or sorry. Or sorry. The benefit of hiring versus not hiring somebody who could be good and, you know, not hiring somebody good versus, uh, not hiring somebody who's not good. You think about the payoffs in that tree, mm-hmm. that's judgment. Mm. You have to, if you're going to have a machine automatically sort resumes or even higher, um, you're going to need to pre-specify that judgment. Mm. The machine can't do that for you. All the machine can do is tell you the likelihood that somebody uh, hits a score that you did. And so what you value is is judgment. Yeah. Does that have implications then for the labor markets, for the labor market for judgment? I mean, because you could imagine, you keep sort of kind of, I hear you saying two things. One is you could put a human in the loop or you somehow pre-specify the the AI. So it sounds like it could be complementary, in which case it augments a person with judgment already, or it could be substitutable. Is that right? Am I reading it right? Yeah. So it's yeah, kind of ambiguous what the what the impact so, are on the that particular labor market for judgment. The, yes, the impact the impact of prediction. So we have a journal of economic perspectives paper uh, where we were asked to talk about our framing on the impact of prediction machines on the labor market. Uh huh. And um, it was paper because our conclusion was we just have no idea. Yeah, to the point where we titled the paper "The Ambiguous Impact of Artificial Intelligence on Labor Markets." Um, oh. Okay, because, good. All because right, so we, we were we were hoping for something well structured and saying, "Oh, you know, it's going to work this way or that way." And then once we looked at the examples and thought through the models, uh, we ended up in a place where we said, "Well, it, it depends." In in almost every case, there are forces going both directions. Mm-hmm. 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 So, well, so, so this man, I, I didn't, we haven't even gotten to talk about chat GPT. So, uh, I, I, I want to keep talking about this, but, um, that's, um, that's fascinating. Um, so that's where the book comes out. That's where prediction yeah. machines comes out. It's a lot, a lot about those ideas. Right. So prediction machines was, we wrote this blog post blog post had an impact. Like people read it and oh, shared, wow. liked it. Um, and we decided to, to think about what do we, how do we communicate this idea more broadly? Um, up until that point, we'd all been research paper focused. Joshua had written a couple of books, but it was more research paper focused. And we realized this was an idea, not only for professional economists, but for a general audience. And so we, we found a publisher and we we drafted out this book with the thesis with that thesis that AI is prediction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and 
that, uh, yeah. So that book is basically day one of Econ 101. It is. This yeah. prediction machines is Econ 101. Yeah. It's Econ 101, but not even Econ 101. It's the first day, which is that prediction. You know, first day of Econ 101 is when coffee gets cheap, you buy more coffee. Uh-huh. When coffee gets cheap, you don't want to be in the tea business because tea and coffee are substitutes. Right. And when coffee gets cheap, you want to be in the cream and sugar business. Yeah. You want to get about substitutes and compliments. Yeah. Downward sloping demand so, curves. And then in this, that book is when prediction gets cheap, we're going to do more prediction. When prediction gets cheap, machine prediction gets cheap, the human, the parts of your human work that are prediction are going to go away. And when, um, you elements which are we focus on data and judgment mm. uh, and then that's then there's some other pieces to that that are important like a uh, some caution on these are prediction machines they don't do causal inference well um and some discussion about uh what it means for company strategy so who read the book it did well i'm assuming because yeah. there's the sequel that came out but like yeah. who, who did you notice was the primary audience it's it seems like it must have had a general it had a lot of yeah. general impact right so it had a general audience like it was um people interested in the technology industry yeah. trying to get their heads around what this meant so mm -hmm. a lot of them were um you know, uh you know senior business people who would then give it to their team to say oh you know we're we're doing investment in ai uh here you know, they buy their books for their, you know, their 10 direct reports and say, okay, you know, you need to understand this before we move forward. Yeah. Um, there was, you know, some on the deeper tech side. So venture capital um, and the tech companies there it was to help them communicate with their customers about what they were trying to do. So there yeah. was the one side, which is the customers or the other side, which is people trying to communicate with their customers. And then there was a third audience. That's my favorite um in terms of how it's it's impacted me which is a bunch of scholars like academics outside of economics trying to understand an economics lens on on ai either what they were doing or what was going on in the comp side department and so what i found so fun about writing a book like this is the people in the computer science department now know my perspective Mm. And people school have now invited me and, you know, collaborating, I've collaborated with them on, on work on the economics, on AI medicine, uh, because they've read the book, um, they understand the perspective and they want to think about how it applies to their discipline. So, so you think the core idea that they're like, when it's outside of econ, but it's like in another scholarly field, is it this idea of the downward sloping demand curve and complementarities with judgment? Um, yes, that's like, that. That's the thing they can like wrap their head around. Yeah, it's like um, decision theory has you know Simon and, and others is you know uh, influential in all sorts of other disciplines. Yeah, think about it a little bit differently than we do, but the the roots of that sort of 1960s and 70s decision theory is there, and so um, and so when they. Uh, when they read prediction machines, it was a different language for something that was familiar to them. Yeah. Right. 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 And, right. and that, that's been, that's been really fun. Yeah. I bet. I bet. Well, so I was looking through it and maybe this is, 
Maybe now I get it though. But like I was looking through the index and I was and I was thinking, you know, there's no mention of generative AI and there's no mention of large language models. And I know that there there's got to be like a you already have like a contract for a third book that's like going to and I bet your mom uh, I just want to throw out there. I bet your mom really likes this cover. But it's so aesthetic. Yeah, it's so soft. And the way yeah. they both go together. I mean, it's beautiful. <laughs> Do you like it? They did a great job. They, they really did. They did a great job. Yeah. There's nothing better than just like a great cover. Um, yeah. And um, so, so were you sort of like surprised? When did you, let me ask you this. Let me pull it back. When did you first, when did this large language model, generative AI as a customer product first kind of like get on your radar? Okay, so um, we had Jack Clark, I give a, when he was at OpenAI, give a keynote at an NBR conference, we, the Economics of AI conference, uh, probably 2019 or something. So. I saw an early version of what it could do, and it seemed pretty impressive. That was it when? When would out. that have been? Probably 2019. He's from OpenAI? He's from OpenAI. He comes to the NBR group? Uh, he was a keynote. He's a keynote, so, and he shows you what, like GPT-2 or something? Yeah, something like that. And it was pretty uh -huh. neat. Nirkinson was working with it, and it seemed neat, but not... What did it you look know, like? What? It looked like just some kind of... What would it do that was you remember? So, it would do, so here's the thing. It, um, they didn't do a live demo because it wasn't reliable enough. Yeah. So they show us the output and the output looked like pretty impressive prose. He remind us of things spit out that weren't so impressive. Mm -hmm. And the user interface at the time was, you needed to know how to code to do this kind of thing. Yeah. So it didn't, um, so it seemed exciting, but it didn't, didn't really work. Uh, like as a consumer product, in a sense, that oh, language, yeah, le the idea that language is prediction, in some sense, we'd seen that five years ago or so. Yeah, with but this whole history of natural language processing, yeah. even as an economist, I guess you're kind of like, yeah, I've, I know how to do regular yeah. expressions in Stata, or so. You know, yeah. it's like you're, you sort of, or some of this stuff kind of feels like maybe a little further beyond your skill. Okay, so then what happens? So then. Um, Okay, then so prediction machines came out and we didn't really talk about language process a little about translation but not really about natural language processing and actually then then we wrote our second book mm -hmm. mostly because evolution was going to happen machines and it didn't happen okay wow. so the theme of the second book also from a conversation with tim bresnahan um was well how come it you know what's taking so long and what are the barriers to to making this make a difference but that book came out november 15th 2022 mm. uh, no mention of generative AI language models, admittedly. 2022, November? November 15th. And then November When did you 30th, get the book to the publisher, though? A year before? Uh, yeah, June. June 2022. June 2022, you turn in the manuscript, and then it comes out that November? All everything are done June 2022. I think the manuscript was probably January or something like that. Okay. So there's no mention of l large language models at all? No mention of large language models, no mention of generative AI, um, except for like, you know, the tweak here or there. Right. But that book was about 
transformative change and the barriers to transformative change. Uh-huh. So it fit with what happened. So then, on, you know, two weeks after our book comes out, uh, ChatGPT comes out. ChatGPT 3.5? 3.5. And the user interface. Most, really importantly, the user interface so that anybody can. It's the browser. That's the, that, that's what comes Oh, yeah. that's what comes out. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Cause they'd oh. had that laying around, but they're, it's, yeah. it's that they, you just, it's so funny how not to get on it, but it's, it's so funny how in a way chat GPT is so like old school. It's like log into yeah. a website. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like log into a website and it's type. <laughs> and that's like, that's the product. And it's so mind blowing. All right, keep going. So that comes yeah, out so- four weeks later after the second book. Yeah. And, and then we, and then it seemed like the thing we'd been waiting for was happening. What I mean by that is we wrote prediction machines thinking that everybody should be excited about this technology. It's so amazing. Yep. Then we waited four years and nothing happened. Right. You know, it's trickling and it was, it was happening very slowly. Um, And that was the motivation for our second book about why is it taking so long? Oh. And then over the last year, um things seem to be different now okay okay so then having written those two books why was it taking so long and why does chat if this is true which yeah why would chat gpt be so was your second book correct so yes yeah i think the second book was correct so the second book said it's taking so long you know the old paul david and warren divine jr research on electrification and how even though if you these you even though what edison's patent for the electric light bulb was 1880 so even back in the 1880s it was clear that electricity was going to be a big deal but it took four than most factories and warren divine jr has this economic history paper about why and paul david pointed out that the computer looks a lot like the um uh looks a lot like that history of electricity in a 1990 paper and so that um actually after as i said a conversation with tim bresnahan well maybe we're having we've got to reinvent the organization Mm. to figure out how to use prediction technology well because it changes who makes decisions which means a change in power and you know changing power structures is hard so that i think is still true What's changed since ChatGPT is mo- many people can now imagine uh, powerful this technology. And so I think back in, you know, before ChatGPT, AI seemed very abstract. Yeah. We saw it in science fiction. Yeah, people were saying they're using AI for scientific discovery and AlphaFold and things like that. But for most people on a day-to-day basis, they couldn't, they couldn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. And that user interface meant that we could really interact with an AI in a way that seemed kind of magical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so what's happened over the past you know, year or so is it's gone from interest in venture capitalists or people who love technology to many, many you know, people and organizations around the world saying, oh, we need to understand this. And so like my career has moved from... Um, you know, speaking to tech audiences and academic audiences to a much larger number of, of, of folks who just want to get their heads around what this technology is all about. What do you mean? You were talking so, to like, who are you talking to? That's different. You don't have to tell me names, but like, I mean, yeah, like, no, like so kind of people. Um, so, uh, 
uh, lots of healthcare people uh-huh. out of universities, um, businesses who I wouldn't have thought of as being excited about this, like the construction business, um, the uh, uh, some advertising or marketing businesses. Maybe that makes sense because I'm a marketing professor, but they weren't so yeah. interested five years ago. <laughs> right. Um, the uh, some of the traditional software companies. Um, where else have I? And then lots of like, you know, um, finance. So it's uh, like that AI was always sitting there on the shelf, like a, like a light bulb, but not really being used yet. And chat GPT has basically created gigantic demand, not just for generative AI, but like the whole AI period. Um, Interesting. I just realized I'm running a few minutes late for a meeting. Yes. So yes. We, we can, we can, we can wrap this up. Yeah. I, I'll, I'll take five more minutes. I'm just going to ask him to wait. It's uh, a colleague in an office down the hall. Five minutes doesn't matter. Okay. But, um, <laughs> okay. Okay. Sorry. Uh, so, so has it been, do you think that that's true? Like uh, that open AI might be creating demand, not just for generative AI, but like, all AI? Yes. Not just, is that right? Okay. I think that's right. I don't, at this point, I don't know. So we're still, the the core challenge as someone who most of my career has been about empirics um, and understanding sort of how did, really, how did the internet diffuse and what was its impact in the 90s and early 2000s with studying AI is it hasn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So it's very hard to think about anything beyond hypothesis. Yeah, right. So, um, the thing that, that I find hard to just one myself about, and I, I also think a lot of, a lot of the economists studying this find hard to think about them, you know, to discipline themselves is what's hypothesis and what's actually in data. Yeah. Almost everything we have when we talk about AI is hypothesis. Right. Um, jobs, generative, non-generative, um, we have models of how we think the world works and we're extrapolating a lot from those models and recognizing that uncertainty is, is key. Yeah, sure. I mean, maybe that's part of the strength though of economics in general is that, I mean, when you even think about the early classical economists, they don't have a lot of data or they have, they have, I mean, clearly they have data, but it's not, they have a lot of, they have a lot of models, you know? And, um, and so it may, I wonder, I mean, do you feel like right now that we can kind of close on this, but do, do you, yeah. do you think that one of the things I've kind of been noticing a little bit with AI, when I think about chat GPT is it, the theories that I keep going back to with, with generative AI, they're really old school. They almost kind of go back to you saying you were interested in economic history and macro in a way. It's yeah. kind of like it's uh, theories of production. It's production functions, it's capital and labor inputs, it's distribution and prosperity, structure of wages. Um, and so you're kind of like getting back to just like econ 101 when you're doing AI, because it's like, you know, what's the production function and what what is the complementarities with what this thing is that we barely can understand? Um, yeah, the economics for the... the Maybe the economics will get more complicated as we learn more yeah. and get more data. Uh-huh. Um, 
But for now, I agree with you. The the core models that we need to understand what's going on are our old models. Yeah. Um, are the the tools that we built as a community for the last couple hundred years have been very you know, valuable. They're pretty valuable. I mean, yeah. So e even things like I was just, I teach this class right now for non majors, and it's the Industrial Revolution, uh, and then it's Goldman Katz's book, and then it's AI. And so, yeah. you know, uh, even things just like Golden Katz's uh, race between technology and education seems really valuable because it's just about thinking about, uh, well, it, it puts you in the frame of mind yeah. for thinking about uh, inequality in wages and how this could be impacting it, returns to skill, where because yeah. you start thinking it's not really clear with generative AI and AI in general, what exactly is the skill that it's selecting on? It's not yeah, obvious I at all. What it is? Uh, I I talk about golden cats almost every day. Yeah. Um, so almost every talk I give about AI, the we think about skill by structural change, the race between education, technology, and whether AI is like computing in the internet. Yeah. In which case, labor market inequality will grow, or whether it's not. Right. And Joshua and I, we've written a couple of pieces suggesting we think it's not. Um, but. Reasonable people can disagree on that. There's well because there's it selects there. on so much creativity. Yeah. It's yeah. like it's like it's you, you're starting to go. I wonder if it's going to raise the marginal product of these historians, people that work with yeah. text. You yeah. know, as a, I mean, I know we're like we're sitting over yeah. here with GitHub Copilot and we're becoming a lot faster, but you know, there's a group of people that their whole for forever have been just working with words. Yeah, and uh. You know, like it's 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 entirely and that doesn't even necessarily or, or just individuals that well, even with things. Yeah, I I I um the only frameworks I think about constantly are are production functions and golden and cats. That's the things I just yeah. constantly am thinking about. Well, obviously, it's been so nice to talk and uh, I appreciate you um giving me a little bit, I went, we went over and I, I really appreciate you giving me so much of your time and talking to uh, me. This was wonderful. Thanks so much. Great talking to you.